We are going to have a look at Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to read it up front, and then we'll unpack it together. So let's go. Nehemiah chapter 4. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Shodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a God as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who's great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I should have read that in a Scottish accent. I apologize. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, so that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. That is Nehemiah chapter 4, our our passage for today, God's word to us today. Um, 
right at the start of tonight, I want to kind of just picture the scene. You, you want to do something new. Maybe God's called you to something. There's a whisper. There's a hint of something new. And you go, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to step out. I'm going to be courageous. You know that sometimes you've got, to, you've got to do something new. And so you're doing it. And I, I just want you to be aware. And I'm going to use a few memes to, to communicate. If you are trying to do something new for the Lord, prepare yourself. Criticism is coming. Opposition is coming. I think sometimes you feel like you're going to break out and, and there's just going to be a wind in your back carrying you. But let me just tell you, that's not the case. As we've read in this chapter and as we read the story of God's people, it's very often the case that as you step out, opposition increases, criticism increases. Here's a picture uh, called Angry Anger Transference from 1954. I think it still rings true by Richard Sargent. It seems that as the boss screams at the employee, the employee screams at the spouse, the spouse screams at the kid, and, and the cat basically is the final recipient of the kind of anger being passed along. And we can all laugh at that because it's kind of true that, that, it, it, that it can get into a, a, a ecosystem that easily. My next meme is from SpongeBob SquarePants. Me giving criticism, like, yeah, I'm so, I want to speak truth to power, etc. But then when we're on the receiving end of it, it just doesn't quite feel right. And we wonder to ourselves, man, is this what it means to be human? And here's what can happen. In the face of oppositional criticism, we can get hard-hearted. We can get hard-hearted. And we can maybe execute on the plans we had, but we become a different kind of person in that process. Did you find yourself being a different person in different contexts? Could be that opposition has got into you, criticism has taken root, and you actually are surviving by hardening your heart and not, and not having a soft heart. I remember a pastor who said for many years, saying, Paul, the key is to remain with a soft heart towards God and others. But it's hard having a soft heart. What would that look like? Because criticism and opposition can, over time, beat you to a position where you actually, to protect yourself, just harden yourself up, and believe that's what it means to live the best life you can. I don't think that's true. And that's why today we're going to be looking at the children of God, uh, Israel's, Israel at the time, who, who want to be faithful to God. And they're starting something new. They're rebuilding the walls. And they're going to have massive criticism thrown at them. And we're going to see their hearts actually do harden. They do harden. And, and we're going to learn what it means to offer holy resistance. What it means to offer holy resistance, to keep our hearts soft in that place. It's a little bit dark in here. Albert, can you maybe turn the lights on there? Is that okay? That's a bleep. I just want to see the good people. Don't, don't let darkness be the opposition. So let me quickly recap. We're on chapter four of a book that is actually, a, yeah, it's the mom's room, Steph. You've got to be careful <laughs> stepping in there, brother. That's why I was strategic in who I asked. <laughs> uh, there we go. So, so here, here's the deal. It's the fourth chapter of the book, but chronologically, it's the last, okay? It's not the last in the, in the Old Testament, but chronologically, it is. It's about 400 years before Jesus is going to enter the city of Jerusalem. And what God's doing is he's getting his people ready, and he's getting the city ready for the true and better David, Jesus, who's going to come in 400 years' time to rule and to reign. And a reminder, why do they need to rebuild the city? Well, God had warned them many times, I'm your God, you're my people, follow me, and they hadn't listened. And so after several warnings, God disciplines them by sending the Babylonians who come in, they destroy the city, and they take the best and the brightest with them to Babylon. Daniel, one of the books of the Bible, is an example of a group that get taken. And the whole idea is you're going to so enjoy Babylon, you're going to forget wherever you came from, and your primary identity is going to shift to become Babylonian. Well, it seems there's a group of people that don't take the bait. 
and they remain true to their roots and they remember the God who, who has sent them into exile and they return 70 years later. The Babylonians no longer ruling the world at the time. The Persians had conquered them and the Persians say, you can go back and rebuild. The first wave went back and rebuilt the temple. The second wave came and really emphasized spiritual health and set up the priesthood. And now the third wave has come. As Nehemiah in the city of Susa, a cupbearer, he's sorted. He doesn't need to, but God gets hold of his heart and says, my city's in ruins. Go back, Nehemiah. Take four, 12, sorry, 12 years of your life and go back and rebuild. I'm resourcing you. I'm giving you the vision. Go and do it. And so that's what we see Nehemiah do. He's back. He's rebuilding the walls. The locals are not happy, but he's got about 40 working groups that are busy closing up the city so that peace and prosperity can take place. And so today's structure is to look at what this opposition looks like. I've called a sort of unholy opposition to God's work. What does that look like? And then secondly, we're going to look at what holy resistance looks like and particularly how we can still do the same today. Now, as I start, I want to just quickly quote from John Tyson, who I think does a great job of this passage. And, and, and he says the following. He says, you know, part of what we've got wrong nowadays, he's a pastor in New York, is that we actually don't know how to handle opposition. We don't know how to handle criticism. We're just not very good at it. And in particular, we can get easily offended. A victim mentality has taken over. And what's happening is that it appears everyone is a victim. I'm offended. Well, I'm offended, you're offended. I'm wounded and offended. And next thing you know, everyone is comparing each other and trying to find the biggest victim. The problem is, if everyone's a victim, then no one's a victim. And the real sufferers of injustice are overlooked because everyone else is clamoring for attention. He makes the comment that we need as a community to recognize that as Christ followers, we shouldn't be that easily offended. That proverb says it's to your glory to overlook an offense. We don't have to rally against everyone else. And how you handle criticism can actually be a sign of maturity. Christians should not be easily offended. And we should be those that in a given situation don't play the victim mentality game, but actually help society identify the real victims and act on their behalf. The very next chapter, in fact, we're going to see Nehemiah doing that finding out those suffering from injustice, and we're going to see the actions he takes. So let's get going with opposition, and let's not be too quick to go, that's me, I'm always facing opposition, woe is me. Let's recognize, no, there, there, are, there are deeper levels of opposition, and we need to be fighting for those who suffer from it. So let's get stuck in. Let's get stuck in. Only unholy opposition to the work of God. Do you see in verse 1, Sanballat, who we've heard already, is the local person who's incredibly upset. He's, he's getting more upset, though. He's going from anger to greatly enraged, and he's going to jeer at the Jews. A quick reason why he would do this, there are many possible reasons. One of them is that the political authority that he had is busy getting taken away. If a new city comes with its new government, that's going to reduce his sphere of influence. Secondly, you can imagine the trade patterns and trade hubs and markets all established, and as soon as a new market and a new city takes place, that's going to redirect traffic along you know, lucrative lines, and all of a sudden, there could be a cut that is no longer his. Finally, there are religious reasons in that what's happening here is the exiles that have come back have specifically said to the locals, guys, we're doing this because we want to be stay true to the God of the Bible, but we see that you, you've compromised. You've kind of believed a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and so we're not including you in the rebuilding project. And you can imagine that straight away makes people go, oh, who makes you, who makes you the rulers, and who are you? And so 
for political, for economic, and for religious grounds, there's a lot of opposition. Things have started out, it's like, hey, we're not happy. They've become anger issues, and now they are great enragement issues. Let's keep reading what happens. It starts with words. It starts with words. And in the presence of his brothers, and get this, the army of Samaria, right? That's a whole army that's just rocked up. Why don't they just rock up and take them all out? Remember, Nehemiah has a letter from the Persian king saying he's allowed to do it. So they, they're savvy enough to go like, we can't actually just go in here gung-ho. We've got to just arrive, intimidate, and speak words of death over them. What, what are some of the words? Let's have a look. Firstly, they're words that want to belittle their qualities. They're called feeble Jews. That word is actually the same word that talks about of a withering plant, a plant that's kind of like, like I love Afrikaans word, philip. Philip, that's kind of, philip, right? They belittle their qualities. They deride their ambitions. Look at what they say. Well, they're historic, like, you know, you can just pick up the sarcasm in their voice. They mock their optimism. Well, they sacrifice, they really think they can get this thing going. They lampoon their enthusiasm. Well, they finish up in a day. They undermine their confidence by saying, will they revive the stones? And then they magnify their problems by saying, oh, and these stones, they are, they are heaps of rubbish and burnt ones at that. One of the big lies is um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me, right? That's not true. It's just never true. Words harm, and especially words that directed at, at what you feel God's called you to. The outside opposition is in full throttle. At this stage, the people keep building. They keep building. So let's see what happens to the opposition from verse 7. Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Shadalites. Now, what's happened? The opposition used to be in the north, Sanballat. He was joined by Tobiah in the east. The Arabs now have joined. They're in the south. And the other two, guess what? They're in the west. So what's now happened is the opposition has fully surrounded this building project. Everyone's got word. And they're coming to take exception to it. They've heard about the repairing of the walls. It's going forward. Breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Things are escalating. Let's keep reading. Our enemies said, verse 11, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived nearby, in the nearby cities, came and said to us, not once, not twice, not three times, but ten times, they said, people, you must return to us. Like, stop staying in the city, stop rebuilding it, come to us, and let's just calm the whole situation down. Now, things are escalating outside opposition. The local Jewish populations picked it up, and they're saying, guys, ten times, please calm down. But more damaging than that is what's starting to happen internally. Let's read from verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. These are the builders themselves. This is probably a song. Can't pick it up in English, but the way it's kind of written in the original language, it seems like a repetitive kind of song. They would have started singing. Outside opposition has become inside depression. You see, if opponents can't physically harm you, they will try to break your spirit and, and try and get you stop aligning with the word of God and the truth of God over your life and start to align around their version of events and their discouraging word over your life. And over time, that discouragement from others can become internal doubts, 
such that you are singing, we cannot rebuild the wall. Just a few chapters ago, remember they faced opposition and they said, no, for God has put this into our hearts and we're gonna work and build. They've gone from God has put this into our heart to we can't do it. That is the power of outside opposition that becomes internal opposition and internal depression. At this point, the temptation is very high just to quit. They have been grumbled at not once, not twice, but 10 times by their close friends and they have the song of discontent that is now on their lips. Can you relate to that at any stage? Have you ever had a project that you've launched and you've gone for it and, and it just hasn't quite matched your expectation? I can share from my life, I, I qualified as a chartered accountant and I returned to UCT to teach the people. And I just saw myself as like pretty much Florence Nightingale with a spreadsheet, you know? These students are so lucky. I could be earning the big bucks out there, but I've come back to UCT and I've got these classes of 600, 800 times, lecturing three times a day. And it was just a marvelous kind of season of my life. And then the UCT lecturer evaluations would take place anonymously, all the students could write about their lecturers and say what they wanted to say. And you know what was incredible? Is you would have all these lovely things said, but there would be a few people that just didn't recognize brilliance. <laughs> and it would be disproportionately impactful. I mean, it would hurt. And even today, I can remember one say, I never learn anything from Paul. I have to read my textbook afterwards. We're <laughs> just like, oh, that textbook is so lame. How can you say the textbook is better than me? And it just got under my skin on another level. Can you relate to that? I mean, it's amazing. You have job evaluations, performance evaluations, and it's almost like all the good stuff just washes over you in that one thing. You're like, oh, oh, oh. And it's like, it gets to you. Criticism gets to you, and, and suddenly you align your life with that version rather than the truth. I eventually, by the way, started giving Leanne because in there was some good stuff. Paul speaks too fast or, you know, so I've got to read it. I'm not ostrich in the sand, but I also recognized I, I wasn't mature enough at the time to read it. So I'd get my wife to read it and she, afterwards she'd be, okay, this is good, this is good. Work on this. I'd say, thank you, baby. And I wouldn't have the, I wouldn't have the kind of like, because here's the thing, you harden your heart in response. Now you stand up and you lecture, but you're looking out like you. You disrespect. Well, it's probably a few people, but suddenly you've, with a hard heart, you've, you've painted that whole room with that attitude. I can speak about marriage, where you kind of recognize something or in a relationship, and you go, you know what, that's not, that's not good. I'm going to change my ways. And you change your ways, and people look at you and go, what's happening? You're acting weird. And you're like, no, I'm not. No. And, and suddenly, this great idea you thought that was going to improve things faces oppositions. And, and suddenly, you're like, oh, my gosh, why do I even try? Like, I'm just going to go back to the old way. And, and you get... You get an expectation gap between what you thought would be an easy step up where everyone would be encouraged. Just suddenly there's opposition and you can go, ah, and you bail and instead of pushing into what God has called you to and what you need to persevere in. See, here's the thing. They experienced opposition. You can anticipate opposition as well. It's, it's that simple. There will not be a standing ovation as you make these changes, as you follow God. P chances are, because you're disrupting the status quo, the opposite is going to be true. An unholy opposition is going to take place. What do you do at that moment? Well, here's the call to holy resistance. Holy resistance. Let's see what Nehemiah does. Verse 4, he prays. He says, Here, oh my God. Now, if you're a guest here, welcome. This is going to be an interesting prayer to follow along to. Here, oh my God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. So he's got some strong thoughts here. 
And then he knows God's forgiving, so now he doesn't want God to be forgiving. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they've provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, Nehemiah would have read David's Psalms, and there's a whole bunch called the impeccatory Psalms, where David just has these very human moments. They're prescriptive, uh, I mean, descriptive. They're kind of telling you what David's saying to God, not necessarily uh, prescribing how you should do things, but it's a very human moment where you say, God, go get them. There are evil people driving me crazy. Go get them and don't forgive them. What's happening here is that I think Nehemiah is teaching us where we should take our emotions. That bad evaluation, that bad job report, do you lash out at the person horizontally or do you take it to God and say, God, this is how I feel. And you place yourself in his hands and he slowly whispers to you and says things, hey, I never called you to UCT to be Mother Teresa with a spreadsheet. I called you to UCT for another reason. Of course, there's gonna be opposition and you get into that place of understanding, again, the truth of what God has to say to you. What's fascinating about Nehemiah is he has the opponents earlier. He has them escalating against him, and the opponents are still going to come throughout this book. But whenever he deals with them, the next encounter, they're going to go at him. And you know what he says? He says, hey, I, they're trying to trick him to get him to leave the work. And he says, hey, guys, I'm about a great work. I can't go and see you. I'm sorry. He doesn't go off at them. He doesn't rail against them. He's very polite. He's very honoring. And I think part of the reason he can be is because he's taken his true feelings to God, and he's allowed God to shape him and to speak truth to him. The place where holy resistance starts is before God, as we get our hearts tender before him. So he prays. He then reads, we can read from verse eight, they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. What did they do? We prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. What's Quite incredible is Jerusalem, the city of peace, is effectively becoming an army camp. It's becoming an army camp. And you might say, but they prayed. Why is it becoming an army camp? Because sometimes we're in either or thinking. We're saying, oh no, we prayed or we make an army camp. But notice, they prayed to our God and set a God of protection. You see, God is sovereign. God is the one we come to in prayer. But we also have human responsibility. They're things that God's called us to do. It's both and. You pray to God and you set a God. A little bit later on, you'll read this verse. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. You're like, oh, cool. Let's sit back, get the popcorn. And what you actually hear is, and so we worked with one hand on the trial, one hand in the sword. I had the trumpet guy with me. Trumpet guy, if you hear him, come. It's like, what? But I thought you guys had, had said that the Lord would fight for you. It's like, yes, and we will do our bit. We've got responsibility. It's prayer and perspiration. Prayer without action is presumption. I remember at school, the guys go, no, I didn't have time to study, but the Lord, I prayed. That's presumptuous, right? Action without prayer is self-reliance. It's forgetting that you're not just living life. You, you, you're living life in God's creation. I love the story of a pastor who apparently was on a ship and a fire broke out and like buddies came running. He said, pastor, we need to pray. There's a fire on the ship. And he said, yes, yes, let's pray, but let's also pass the buckets, you know? Uh, you, you find it throughout Scripture, not just in Nehemiah. In Isaiah 38, there's an incredible story of a king, Hezekiah, who reigns and he gets sick and it looks like his life's coming to end and he cries out to God, said, God, extend my life. And God says, okay, I'll give you 15 more years, Hezekiah. And then he says, go create a hot plaster and put that on the infected area. Now again, you think, oh, but God's promised him 15 years relax, Hezekiah. It's like, no, get the hot plaster, put it on the infected area. 
we tend to collapse the two. We say, either I pray to God or I do things. It's like, no, no, it's, it's praying for protection and setting a guard. It's the Lord will fight for us and we will prepare ourselves. That's what holy resistance looks like. It's prayer and it's prayer that's got stirred into action. What else do we read? We see um, Nehemiah in verse 14 saying, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, it calls everyone together, do not be afraid of them. This is the Scottish accent bit. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. A theologian once said, if you have to have a one word summary for the whole Bible, what would that one word summary be? And everyone's like, Jesus. It's like, okay, okay. But the other one would be, remember. Remember. That's what the Bible's all about. It's God's truth. Remember, remember, remember. And he's saying, remember the Lord who's great and awesome. And then out of that, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. What a great verse for Father's Day. It's not just Jeremiah that says, remember the Lord. Go read um, in Deuteronomy 8, Moses with his people saying, remember the Lord. Go and read Jeremiah in Jeremiah 51. He also says, remember the Lord. Over and over again, it seems like holy resistance after a time of prayer becomes a time collectively of saying, guys, it's not about us. It's about the Lord and what he has promised. And then out of that place, we do see all the logistical things taking place. Each of the builders in verse 18 had his sword strapped at his side while he built the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. I love this kind of picture of everyone bringing their contribution, you know, trumpet guy <laughs> cruising around. Um, at, at verse 19, it's, I said to the nobles, the officials, the rest of them, this is work that is great and widely spread. We're separated on the wall, far from one another. When you hear the trumpet rally to us, our God will fight for us. It's this beautiful picture of we're doing everything we can, but just remember the real source underneath it all is a God who will fight for us. And the final thing, uh, besides prayer, besides a, um, a remembering of the Lord, besides a group of people coming together to remember the Lord together and to use all their different gifts to resist the opposition, um, we see in verse 23, neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the God who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This unbelievable focus, this unbelievable attention. And a verse, if you never want to shower again in your life, here you got your verse. Verse 23, yours to keep. Um, don't show my children. Holy resistance of, of just a focus on what God has called you to for a season. So, what are some applications for ourselves? The first application I think I've made already and just reminding you, you must expect opposition. Expect opposition in this life. Jesus himself said, woe to you if they speak well of you. He's like, hey, if you're just blending in with everyone else, chances are you're not following me. Don't go looking for opposition, just expect it when you follow me. Sometimes when you're doing a great thing, others will not appreciate it and will actively oppose you. Go read Jesus again in Matthew 5 where he says, rejoice and be glad when others persecute you. Don't run out there and try and make people annoyed with you. Follow God, and when, and when the opposition arises, go, oh, I, I probably am, am standing against darkness. I'm extending the kingdom of heaven because those that are standing against me are evil, and they're persecuting me. I'm on the right track. I love the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Timothy's a, a youngster kind of learning from Paul around what it means to follow God and to lead, and Paul writes these words to Timothy to, to pass on all that he's learned. 1 Timothy 3 says, verse 12, indeed, all who desire, so notice all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's someone who's had years of experience passing it on to the next person. All people, 
who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So expect opposition. But then, isn't this helpful for what you see in the news every day? Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's what you see. It's like, how's this happening? What's going on? You get all upset by the news. Don't be upset. This is what happens as we seek to extend God's kingdom. Opposition will come. Interestingly, if you look at the different um, faith systems around the world, none of the founders ever died young in shame. They all died old and full of years. Whether it's Muhammad or Buddha, you look around, it looks like they lived a life of triumph. They got to live it all the way through. Jesus Christ is the only one who died young and died in a very seemingly like, defeated way. Like, ugh, like that ended way too soon. He was beaten way too quickly. And a part of Part of us should wonder why. What was what was up with that? Why didn't Jesus like die at the end of a long and happy life? I think what we're learning, and it's just hints and whispers, we can't look at all of them. I think what we're learning is that when opposition arises and it looks like we're seeming defeat, when weakness is like all that we experience, Jesus Christ dying young, dying in that exact same position, becomes an unbelievable companion as he pours out his spirit and he teaches us how in seeming weakness and in seeming defeat God is at work and actually victory is coming through that weakness it's it's a bizarre way to do it but if you think about it how better to help you when you face opposition when you've been betrayed when when it seems like you haven't just lost you're about to die how much of a resource do you have to know that that is exactly what my God did to purchase me back to bring me back to redeem me in, in his weakness he worked resurrection power. When I am weak, when the opposition feels like it is crushing me, and whatever it is, whatever addiction it is, whatever lie you've believed, in that very moment, I know that Christ experienced the exact same thing, and the same spirit that raised him from the dead can raise me from the dead. Expect opposition, but expect God to be with you in that moment. A, 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 a God like no other. And the final point is when, when holy resistance is your call, can I encourage you to strengthen yourself in the Lord? strengthen yourself in the Lord. That's what Nehemiah did over and over again. He took it to the Lord and said, Lord, this is how I'm really feeling. He wasn't the only one. Just look quickly at David. This is a story from um, 1 Samuel. Uh, David uh, was greatly distressed. Let's read from verse 6. For the speak, people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. What happened? David had taken the mighty men and they'd gone and, and for God conquered and they'd defended and they'd done this great campaign. They come back to their hometown of Ziglag and get this, while they were out there, the opponents had snuck in and taken all the women and children out. So instead of coming back into a town of celebration, they come back into an empty town where all their families have been taken. And you can imagine that moment, everyone going, David, like, you were leading us out there. Now we've lost everything. They're bitter for their soul, each for his sons and daughters. What did David do in that moment? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He strengthened himself. Before, before offering holy resistance, he got real before God and said, God, I need you to strengthen me. What is strengthening yourself in the Lord like besides reading his word and being in community regularly and, and and drawing on others, I think it also looks like looking back over journals and looking back over God's story in your life. Maybe a list of prophetic words or encouraging emails, words that, that remind you of the truth spoken over your life rather than the loudest opposition voices you currently face. Uh, a folder of, of those things can be incredibly valuable as like fuel for the fight. Uh, pull out those encouraging emails. And as a community, can I encourage us to be one where 
where we put courage into each other rather than take courage out of each other. Encouragement rather than discouragement. I, wanna, I want us to be in a, a community of encouragement and hope. We're willing to do the work. We're willing to notice where things need to improve, all those things. But let's be a people of faith that agree in faith rather than point out all the obstacles we can face. Holy resistance means joining together to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and strengthen one another